So many of us take our internet connectivity for granted. It's easy to forget that not long ago we listened as a modem connected through a dial-up connection and we hoped we could send an email before there was a hiccup. Today, those of us with good access stream video and podcasts and music, teach classes, run meetings or businesses without a thought about how much data we have or how long it takes. That is, however, not universal, and the lack of broadband access is constraining economic activity for farms and food businesses and widening the gaps between those who have opportunity and those that do not. My name is Mike von Massow, and this is the Food Focus Podcast. Helen Hamley is a professor at the University of Guelph who studies knowledge mobilization, information technology, and telecommunications in agricultural innovation systems. She is also the project leader for Regional and Rural Broadband Project, R2B2. You should check out their website. We talk about rural broadband, why it matters, and what we need to do better. I continue to be gratified by the feedback on the podcast. We appreciate your support, and it is helping us grow. If you're inclined, give us a review anywhere you get your podcasts. It helps others find us. Contact us at foodfocus at uoguelph.ca for comments or suggestions for future issues or episodes. Thanks again. And now straight to my conversation with Helen. Well, hello, Helen, and thank you for taking the time. Hi, Mike. It's nice to be with you today. I know that you spend a lot of time talking and thinking about issues on uh, relative to rural internet and rural broadband connections, and we're hearing more and more about it now as governments are saying it's important. Why is it important that we have good rural broadband? Well, the challenge of rural broadband has been with Canadians for a few decades now, and it has really hit home because of the COVID-19 pandemic. I like to explain this area of research as something that, that moves in waves. Uh, at one point, we'll be really caring about it and there'll be a release of uh, public money, for instance, to invest in private infrastructure that um, gets us access to the internet. And then it'll bottom out. Uh, it'll, these funding envelopes and policy initiatives will disappear. And uh, then uh, before we know it, um, we are back in a, another uh, impetus for improved connectivity. And uh, COVID-19 has been one of the, the high, highest waves of recognizing that there are about uh, anywhere between 40 uh, to 60 percent of uh, folks in rural areas who have very poor, unreliable connectivity. So that's why it's important. And when we're all living and working from home, we experience it in terms of not being able to run our home-based business, not being able to uh, upload data to the cloud for say our, our barn systems um, on the farm. Maybe our kids can't go to their virtual classroom or our university students can't live at home during the pandemic and have to move to town to access their courses. So we're all living it right now and um, it's beyond important. We actually refer to it as essential service now. I think you made some good points there because, you know, many of us think about internet less about sort of supporting a business or supporting us at work. And it became profoundly more important during COVID. I think many people think, well, email, 
Netflix and those sorts of things. While those are important from a leisure time perspective, uh, there are things fundamental to running business, to being competitive in rural communities that depend on a good internet connection. Yeah, absolutely. And my project, it's called the Regional and Rural Broadband Project, R2B2 for short. It's based here at the University of Guelph. And the data that we've been analyzing over the, the last several years has really pointed to essential aspect of connectivity for businesses, uh, both in the urban and the rural areas, uh, as well as uh, social equity uh, issues. So making sure that seniors have access to telehealth services or that young people have access to uh, the kind of connectivity that keeps them connected to their friends and to their schools, et cetera. So the issues now are, are upon us. The data is starting to uh, improve. And as I mentioned earlier, um, the government, both federal and provincial, as well as municipal governments have really gotten behind rural broadband. So uh, we're in a, a good place um, as an engaged researcher in this area. I feel it's a really good place, but it's also a very complex and challenging um, area of work. I want to follow up uh, on a couple of points directly that you've made. I think it's been highlighted the importance for education, both for receiving and also delivering education. So from where I live, I'm lucky. I am sort of semi-rural, just outside of Alora in Ontario. and I wouldn't have been able to teach remotely if the pandemic had come 18 months earlier. We were lucky enough to be sort of close enough to Alora to get fiber put in on our street. And so we have access to relatively good and predictable broadband. But I think about I couldn't have done it 18 months ago. And I know that there are lots of our students and people with kids in, in elementary school who, who have struggled because of a lack of connectivity. And I think that that has been highlighted by COVID, but it also, it, it won't go away once COVID goes away. We've seen reductions in resources put to what we would call traditional agricultural extension. And so outreach to people in rural communities, whether they are farmers or or, or citizens that live in small communities uh, really is to a significant degree driven by internet-based content, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. The whole digitalization of life as we know it isn't going backwards. It's, it's only going to go forward. So we, we really talk a lot about digital transformation of everyone's livelihood, whether you're in the urban or the rural area. And uh, there are similarities, but there's also differences in those two environments. We, we're living this experience uh, right now with the COVID-19 pandemic, but you're absolutely right. Uh, we're not going backwards in terms of uh, digital life anytime soon. I'll give you a couple examples that uh, we've been looking at uh, in the project. So um, one is uh, something that you mentioned already, the digitalization of agricultural knowledge and advisory services. So what uh, we typically call extension, ag extension, or um, knowledge uh, translation and, and transfer. Uh, digitalization of agricultural knowledge is, is now seen actually as an economic opportunity as farms pull in more information and data all the time for decision support, but also as they produce a new crop of data, uh, if you want to have it, or a new um, uh, generation of agricultural knowledge 
uh, being transferred off farm. And so these systems, these networks are all going to work very well and to the benefit of the agri-food system, in my opinion, if there is a robust and uh, reliable and equitable infrastructure underlying them. And that means broadband for all. That means as much fiber optic architecture to support reliable and higher data throughput in uh, digital networks. And so this is a tremendous example of, of where things are going in the future. And the second one I wanna explain would be uh, telehealth services. So telehealth services, have really become diversified and tremendous opportunities for uh, folks at home to access um, experts like doctors for, for physical and mental health, for uh, biomonitoring of, say, seniors' health or, or uh, newborns' health, uh, perhaps also support for uh, young people and counseling online and, and sort of cloud-based as well as um, secure uh, systems of ensuring that uh, young people have access to the health care that they need. And uh, we also see that with animal health. So we, we always think about human health, but also with veterinary and animal health, telehealth systems are also expanding rapidly. So all of this health-related data and information has a tremendous potential to improve our classic or traditional health systems to make sure that there's health for all and health and health services in many different forms. And in my opinion, we could also look at um, the opportunity to, to make um, better choices around our health. So biomonitoring of our animals, but biomonitoring of ourselves, biomonitoring of wildlife, all of these, these systems will help us make more sustainable and um, cost-effective choices. And so this is the future. It's, it's a very exciting field. It's upon us already. And again, the key thing is we need the really robust, essential infrastructure to make this all happen. I couldn't agree more. One of the things that that you alluded to, but I'm glad you brought telehealth. I think, you know, that that sort of remote health particularly in rural communities that have often been underserved and, and have had difficulty getting doctors to come, really provides an opportunity to help sort of bridge that gap and frankly close that gap to maybe not all the way to access that, that many in urban communities take for granted. But one thing that I think is becoming critically important for the food system is the issue of access to consumers or or supporting small rural businesses that can't access consumers as easily as if you had a store at the corner you know in Kensington market or something in Toronto and we're seeing increasingly consumers go to the internet for specialty products and we're seeing smaller rural based sometimes farm based sometimes just small community based companies whose business is driven by and based on access to the internet. I spoke in an earlier episode of my podcast to a, a flower producer just outside of Fergus here, and she saw a 3,000% increase in her demand for flour all over the internet, all through her website, but said that there were days and if the wind was blowing a certain way, that leaves from trees blocked her access to the internet. So, so if we want to build these sort of 
if we want to leverage these different ways of, of buying and take advantage of those, we need to have the infrastructure there so that these businesses can access those customers. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel for that uh, producer that you've mentioned, when we have to move our businesses home, when we can't, we don't have the connectivity to support home-based business, which, by the way, is rarely tracked in economic development. And, and we see, you know, regions like Halton region uh, with, you know, 40% of, of, of respondents in a survey of around 2,500 rural residents have a home-based business. This is something that is significant and has been flying under the radar even pre-pandemic. But now, uh, during the pandemic, when we are working from home, it is really difficult to have an e-storefront or a digital storefront. And some businesses have, you know, still maintained a one-person storefront or one-person business premise off outside the home just to be able to have reliable uh, internet connectivity. So I've heard of uh, families, for instance, who have rented a commercial presence Um, to take themselves to work and their kids to school because they didn't have connectivity at their rural home. These are the things that uh, are teaching us a good lesson about why we need to innovate with higher capacity and and higher quality of service connectivity uh, going forward out of the pandemic. Does how we deliver it matter? Does the platform we use to deliver broadband to rural communities matter? Yeah, so let me explain a little bit about broadband, what, what it is. So broadband is just a term for higher speed or higher um, quality of service connectivity to the internet, so higher speed internet. Um, we have a national speed threshold, which in my opinion is not been helpful, but it's set at 50 megabits per second download and 10 megabits per second upload with a latency or, or throughput um, of uh, 50 milliseconds. So most of us, if we're on a 50-10 connection, can can do the usual things of you know email and we can stream a bit of video, we can join a Zoom meeting. But the challenge is that it's fine for an individual user uh, level, this 50-10 threshold, perhaps we, it, it's called the good enough uh, strategy. It's good enough for us. But if we want to do anything more sophisticated as an individual or say as a business, 50-10 doesn't cut it. And if we have multiple users with multiple devices, and this is the Internet of Things, as we call it, when the Internet of Things becomes more complex, more devices, more people using, you know, your kids are doing their school online, you're trying to, to pull something down from the cloud or work through a virtual private network to your office. And then uh, grandfather is uh, uploading uh, test results from his biomonitor. You know, if this type of, of activity is happening within a household or lo and behold, across a farm, the, the experience of broadband is a very poor one, typically. So the infrastructure, the robust infrastructure to really support digitization of of life as we know it is going to be based on on fiber. You know, that's all the experts agree that more fiber to the premise, whether it's fiber to the farm or fiber to the household or fiber to the business is needed. And uh, there are a next uh, set of technologies emerging in our area of work. Um, the low Earth orbit uh, satellite connections, this constellation of lower Earth satellites are, are connecting and getting a lot of publicity right now. 
they're down the road and they, they may still very realistically not be enough to move us beyond that 50, 10 megabits per second threshold experience. So we need to make sure that um, we're really harnessing all sorts of different technologies, ensuring that um, the infrastructure is accessible so that, for instance, one of the the challenges in our in our area of work is and uh, research is seeing um, one provider most of this infrastructure is owned by the private sector uh, one big incumbent provider making sure that there is no um, access to the fiber that they've laid and that they're not willing to license it to um, another local provider uh, to get a community connected. So this kind of bad behavior within the telecoms industry has been around for a long time. It's not unique to broadband either. Not at all. Like if you go back in time, um, many of us remember I grew up on the farm with a, a party line. So you you would remember maybe um, your neighbors listening in on your telephone call. And why did we have a party line? Well, it was because uh, Bill Canada, and in this case, it's uh, the history in, in Canada of our monopoly at that time, was the only one offering telephone services. And so you got what you got. That's what was good enough for rural areas back in the day. And it's very similar to what's happening now in, in many areas of rural southwestern Ontario, but right across Canada, there may be just one provider available to you and you get what you get. Even if there's a small number, if it's an oligopoly, a few providers locally, their packages may be very similar. So you can't exactly see sort of competition and price and service packages the way you would in an urban environment. So these are all some of the disadvantages for the residents and the businesses. I'm intrigued. Is there a difference in access? I guess, let me take a step back first. How are we doing in Canada? Are we making progress? How big is the gap right now? Oh my goodness! So uh, yeah, that's a that's a really good question, and uh, part of it is that um, it depends who you speak to and, and and where the data comes from. So as a scientist in this area, let me tell you, the data really matters, um, and where it comes from and how old that data is. But right now, um, you will see statements that um, around ninety percent of Canadians are connected at a fifty ten megabits per second speed threshold to the internet. So it looks really good. You know, that, that on face value, CRTC or, or sorry, Innovation Science and Economic Development Canada would use these macro statistics. It looks on face value, not too bad. But you dig into it and you find that in fact, uh, only 47% of rural uh, residents have uh, service at that target, at that uh, 50, 10 megabits per second basic service um, level. And so it doesn't start looking very good. And then through projects like the one that I, that I lead at Guelph, we dig in even further, more locally or regionally into the data. And we start seeing uh, the number of underserved households across a region like southwestern Ontario. And keep in mind, this is one of the most densely populated rural areas of Canada. And we see around 230,000 households underserved. And so the data itself, depending on where it comes from, what its date is, and um, what the summary statistics are, can really vary. I want to argue, um, and I, I do argue, that the data challenge in broadband is one of the reasons why Canada hasn't made progress like many other countries around the world. The data challenge has been one of the biggest problems because it fools us to thinking that we're doing okay. And in fact, we're 
we may not be doing okay. And managing investments around a speed threshold like 50, 10 megabits per second is very, very short-sighted because by 2026 or by 2030, when some of our big investments uh, will have been made, 5010 is not going to be fast enough. We're competing not just nationally or as businesses nationally, but also globally with countries that have um, synchronous one gigabit um, per second speeds. And uh, we have a long ways to go to really um, ensure that um, we're going to be able to uh, move communities out of an experience where they're just not able to, um, you know, compete not just today, but you know, five years and ten years down the line with other countries and other regions of Canada. I'm guessing I know the answer to this because of the cost of of putting the infrastructure in. It's easier to do it in more densely populated areas. Is there a difference between small communities and sort of the real? disparate farm community where where they're further apart is there a difference in service for those two groups or is it just some areas of the province more rural more northern that just generally don't have that level of service yeah it's both a regional and a rural challenge so the regional challenge is a region uh, say a macro region like southwestern ontario uh, which uh, includes all of Western Ontario and Niagara region, has a very different service experience than, say, Eastern Ontario or Northern Ontario. So it is a regional challenge. It's also a rural challenge in the sense that rural communities across the province within the regions themselves also vary in terms of kind of connectivity. A, a very small community might, and it sounds like it's it's like uh, around Alora where you uh, indicated that you're living, um, Mike, it may have just been lucky to have been able to be on um, a fiber pathway where there's a breakout and service providers have been able to bring in uh, higher speed service to your community. But a community of the same size that maybe is on a, a line or concession further outside of Alora has not been the lucky one, right? So it, it's it's sort of a it, it, service provision doesn't necessarily always follow the logic of population density. There's other factors that, that come into play. And if a provider who owns, say, for instance, a fiber pathway or who has um, not been willing to um, provide a license to access to um, electronics on a tower to another provider, um, they this behavior, this sort of competitive behavior or uncompetitive behavior, in fact, um, disadvantages some small rural communities. This past year, we wrote a policy brief and it's posted on the R2B2 website of um, the communities which are the least served. They're the, the most underserved in Ontario. And it's about um, 17% of um, 740 grouped communities that have internet speeds below regularly, and uh, this is a concern, regularly below five megabits per second. So remember the national threshold is 50 megabits per second download. This is uh, five megabits per second download on a regular basis for 127 of the 740 communities in Ontario that we tracked. And we used 18 million internet performance tests to do this analysis. And this should be of concern. These are the least served. So that group of communities, they need a different strategy. 
because they're the least served of all communities. There will be residents who just don't have any service whatsoever, whether it's uh, a fixed wireless access, whether it's mobile wireless, etc. They are off, off the digital highway entirely. And so that uh, to me means a specific type of um, public policy um, initiative and providers who are in those areas need to step up their game and look at how um, these really underserved communities can uh, see their service improved. I think in Alora, we've just gotten lucky that we have a local provider that uh, sort of in Wellington County has decided to to put in fiber and, and do it. So as you say, in many cases, it can just be serendipity that makes a difference. So is Canada behind other developed countries in the world? And do you think that that creates an economic disadvantage for us? Canada has definitely fallen in the rankings. If you think back into the 1990s, we're in the, the, the top five and then the top 10 of uh, digital economies in the world. And the situation that we were facing at that time didn't look too bad. There was a strong urban-rural divide. But there was um, there was a lot of uh, emphasis on um, continuing to lead in the digital economy. We have found that um, Canada has fallen in the ranking globally uh, around the digital economy because we haven't maintained the investment in uh, higher speed connectivity for everyone. And so at the global level, we fall below uh, the center point um, of countries that uh, surpass us in terms of, say, for instance, the amount of fiber in the ground. And that would include uh, countries at the top end like South Korea, but also countries like Czech Republic and Guatemala. These are possible um, trading partners and, um, you know, other countries in in the Western Hemisphere that um, we wouldn't expect uh, perhaps to see Canada faring um, badly in comparison to, but we are in fact, you know, when when Mexico is is improving rural connectivity and, and Canada isn't, we, we have to ask ourselves, wait a minute, where, where why have we been um, sort of uh, moved into the situation of, of falling in these kinds of, of national rankings? So um, there are developing countries, as I said, or lower income countries that are much further ahead in the uh, rankings of, of, of the digital economy. And um, Canada is behind uh, even um, Australia, US, some of the uh, comparators that we often um, uh, look to for similar policy or programming initiatives. So, so it's a real potential constraint for value-added food products coming out of rural. You know, we, we talk about the need to add more value to Canadian agriculture. And one of the constraints may well be our lack of competitive access to, to broadband to not only interact with customers, but to track products, to track data and all of those things. And so as we get to the end of this conversation, Helen, then I'm going to ask you, if you were suddenly appointed the broadband uh, czar for Ontario or for Canada, what would your priority be? What should Canada be doing to close this gap? <laughs> thanks for thanks for imagining me in, in such a powerful position, and uh, wouldn't that be something else? But uh, you know, maybe the first thing I, I would think about in a position to be really able to to move the dial on this strategy 
is to ensure that, uh, first of all, uh, we declare broadband as essential infrastructure, similar to other utilities that we experience, like electricity and water. And we also recognize a commitment to uh, broadband internet access as a communication right for all Canadians, because the fact is we are using the internet to communicate and to um, have access to public processes like uh, governance and um, access to the economy for our welfare and for our livelihoods. And so these are like big, big statements. Um, when you declare and regulate internet access as essential service for all Canadians, like electricity, like water, there is a certain enforcement or commitment to that type of regulation. And we don't have that here in Canada. And we, we may need to think through this and look at uh, what that would be like going forward. So there's some big visioning, big commitments that, have, that involve regulatory or institutional change that um, I would want to see. And then the, the second thing is to really create sort of the multi-stakeholder platforms for innovation in this space that we see in agriculture and agri-food already and ensure that um, they are happening. So we see this in digital agriculture, Mike, all the time. We, we see like conferences and trade shows and uh, uh, meetings about digital agriculture and uh, big data in agriculture and agri-food and, and even blockchain technologies and agri-food systems. But what people take for granted is that that's all well and good. These are all applications, but these applications are riding on an infrastructure. Um, they're like the cars that are driving on the road. And what I'm talking about is the road. The quality of that road is not in good shape. So if we're going to see the opportunities of digital agriculture for the agri-food system and for bigger data in agri-food, we better start paying attention to that road that we're all driving on and think really strategically about that. So that means an alliance between the telecoms industry, the agri-food industry, governments, all level of governments, because broadband is a federal and provincial jurisdiction as well as a driven municipally. And we need to put our, our best minds to, to thinking this through. What is it going to be um, in the future? And those best minds are going to include user groups like farmers and farmers associations, like the agri-food industry uh, partners, as well as um, scientists. And um, yeah, so these would be some of the things that I would be thinking about if I was that uh, czar of, of rural broadband or, or broadband in Canada. And uh, let me tell you, that would be a great opportunity, but not one that I'm, I'm uh, dreaming of every day. I'm, I'm dreaming every day of just enabling and encouraging communities to get connected and to work uh, locally as well as uh, regionally to ensure that we don't fall into another um, uh, sort of uh, ebb or, or wane of broadband. We're riding the wave right now fairly highly in this field, but um, let's not kid ourselves. It could go right off the agenda like it has in the past. So right now I'm, I, I love that big dreaming, but to be honest, um, 
let's just get to work and, and, and make these programs and these policies more effective. Let's just get it done. <laughs> let's just get it done. And, and that's the nicest thing is that, uh, you know, in southwestern Ontario, uh, the SWIFT initiative, for example, has 100 projects being built out right now. Some of them around the Wellington County area are, are near completion, if not completed. A whole bunch are, are, are also planned. So my sense is let's just push and get this done. The government's acceleration of the funding that was available, $1.75 billion at the federal level and $1 billion here in Ontario, this was good news. Acceleration is good news. Well, let's move on this. We should have done this 20 years ago, and let's move on this. But then also at the same time, Let's not kid ourselves. We need strategies and investment programs to come out of this pandemic that really link some of these sectors like agri-food and telecommunications in a very smart way. So that we can really leverage the opportunities for progress and economic activity, but also make sure we close. You know, it strikes me that we're also widening the gap with access and opportunity for people who are lower income and those sorts of things. So broadband is not just about creating the opportunity for economic development and to really leverage the internet of things and connect to consumers, but also to make sure that we have a minimum level of service for all Canadians. Yeah. And I think, you know, and, and be realistic about the minimum level of service, because what's the minimum five years ago, 10 years ago, doesn't work now. And we've seen communities that can't even get that minimum. So let's be realistic about setting policy based on an internet speed and also saying this is good enough. It may not be good enough for everyone. So we may actually be creating some social exclusion or some economic exclusion by basing policy on a, on a speed target. And let's be very critical of how that gets measured. And I think that's where the researchers like myself play a good role. Let's make sure that the data has integrity, that we don't just use advertised speed data, for instance, that we also incorporate the user experience um, because there are many communities who are told they have 50, 10 megabits per second and therefore they don't qualify for um, public investment and better broadband. But on a day-to-day -day basis, they know they are not getting 50, 10 megabits per second. And the internet performance data, when you're talking about like 18 million tests, um, you you can see this and you know that there's challenges in that infrastructure. Uh, it's sort of like saying uh, we can drive the 401 highway at 100 and uh, what's the new speed limit? 110, 120, right? And um, we know there are people on that highway driving much faster. And we know that when there's a lot of traffic on that highway, it's a lot slower. We're lucky to get 20 or 30 uh, kilometers per hour. So it's very similar. Let's, let's be sure that... Um, when we, we use uh, speed thresholds for making decisions around broadband, that we include multiple data sets. We look at the issues over time uh, so we can compare back to the past to where we are today and where we need to be tomorrow. And as well, um, we make sure that um, information and the measurements are, are transparent and publicly available for all the public, for the private sector, and for um, government planners. So we all need access to better data around broadband.
Great. Well, thank you very much, Helen. I will not nominate you to be broadband czar, but I will count on you to continue to contribute to this discussion so that we make the progress that we need to in this country and others. So thank you very much for taking the time. I appreciate it. I learned lots. And uh, any last comment that you'd want to make anything that, that you didn't get a chance to get across? No, I think we talked about a, a lot of the, the key issues facing um, the, the topic of rural broadband today in Ontario and in Canada, and even for that matter around the world. And uh, we can do better in this area of work. And I think it's highly relevant to future of agri-food innovation. Perfect. Thanks so much, Helen. As we wrap up another episode, I want to take a moment to thank Max Graham. We get to have the interesting discussions, and he does the hard work to make us sound good. I also want to thank Zach Von Masso for the original music that we use in the podcast. Check out foodfocusguelph.ca. We have a blog that is updated regularly and our Food Focus trend report as well. You can contact us through the website or at foodfocus at uoguelph.ca if you have any questions or suggestions. We appreciate our audience and your recommendation. It helps us grow. If you are so inclined, give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews move us up the ladder and help others find us. That's it for now. Thanks again for listening and stay in touch.